This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Dr. Joe Boot. So Dr. Joe Boot is a Christian thinker, cultural apologist and philosopher, and also the founder of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and founding pastor of Westminster Chapel in Toronto, where he currently resides. So Joe is originally from Great Britain, and he has worked in the fields of Christian apologetics and worldview education and church leadership for over 20 years, both here in North America and across the pond. He's done a lot of speaking engagements over his career, a lot of debates. He actually regularly addresses past and Christian leaders, as well as academic, medical, legal, and political professionals, as he does these public debates leading uh, with leading atheist thinkers and philosophers in Canada and the United States. He really, really engages with a lot of things about the Christian worldview on a regular basis. He's the author of a lot of different books, including his new book, which we'll be spending a lot of the time during this interview talking about, and that is Ruler of Kings. So the thing about this interview is we could have went in a lot of different directions. We had somewhat limited time. We're going to, you know, take care of that later in the future. We're going to have him on to talk about some other things. He deals with so many things in the world of, of theology and philosophy and Christian apologetics, but the overwhelming majority of our time today was spent on the role between essentially the government and the church or, or the government and God. And so that is what the mainstay and the main focus of his book, Ruler of Kings is because guys in this world that we live in right now, with COVID. We're going into three years now of this COVID stuff and the overreach and tyrannical overreach really of a lot of governments around the country. You know, we see these internment camps essentially in Australia. We've seen some of the crazy lockdown issues that they're having in Europe, all the craziness going on in Canada and even here in the United States. You know, we're liberty filled people and we want to push back and all those different things. And yet we've rolled over and played dead in a lot of different areas of, of our life here. And he wants to speak directly to that. He's going to do things that a lot of pastors are too scared to do. A lot of pastors are like, yeah, sure, you know, local government. Tell me when we can open our church doors. Tell me whether or not we can have small group meetings and prayer meetings. Tell me whether or not we can sing praises to the creator God of the universe, right? But he's really speaking to these churches and speaking to these people to give them the ability to push back darkness. I mean, again, here at Undaunted Life, we equip men to push back darkness, and you're going to be able to do that with some of the things that Dr. Joe Boot says. So guys, I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Dr. Joe Boot, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Kyle. I'm so happy to have somebody with your intellect and your skill set on this show. We're so thankful to John Cooper for hooking this up. But in means as a means of introduction, so for guys that don't know who you are and they're not familiar with your work, you are a pastor and a Christian apologist in Canada, but you weren't always those things and you didn't always live in Canada. So if you could just give us sure. the quick version about how you ended up being a pastor and a Christian apologist and also how you ended up in Canada. Sure. So very quickly, uh, I actually began my uh, Christian ministry in music, believe it or not. Uh, I had a, I was in a Christian rock band called the Boot Brothers. It was myself and my brothers. And uh, into my early 20s, that's what we were doing. And for a, a few years, we did that full time. Now, is, um, that, is that on iTunes? Can we get this no, music somewhere? No, it's too old. I'm too old oh, okay. now. Okay. All right. Before we'll any of that. Okay. Um, so, but I would, uh, I would often speak, uh, give a sort of an evangelistic apologetic message after our gigs in hotels and uh, pubs and prisons and music festivals and whatever. And eventually it got to the point where uh, I was looking forward to the speaking more than I was the playing. Mm -hmm. So that's how my actual ministry began. After seminary, I was in music for a while and then um, was a full-time evangelist in England for an organization called Salt Mine Trust. And then I was in pastoral ministry in London, England, uh, for about three years before I joined an apologetics ministry, an international apologetics ministry based out of Oxford. I was asked at that juncture, uh, after a couple of years there, whether I would consider launching an apologetics ministry office in Canada. And uh, I came and did that. My wife and I came and moved to Canada, did that for five years. And after five years, I stepped out of that particular ministry and I planted Westminster Chapel in downtown Toronto, the church, and formed the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, which is our cultural apologetics, Christian philosophy, uh, worldview training organization that is what I focus my time on now. So I'm the founding pastor of Westminster. I led that church for 10 years. I'm now uh, the founding pastor at large. I'm, st I'm still on the elders board. I preach periodically, but I handed over the leadership of the church 
about two and a half, three years ago to uh, a colleague that I was training there for many years. Um, and uh, now my time is focused almost exclusively on the Ezra Institute, where we do writing, scholarship, speaking, cultural apologetics, Christian philosophy work. That's uh, It's a fantastic resource for a lot of folks. I've used it quite a bit myself. The link is in the show notes for you guys to go and check that out. Now, I'm going to spend most of our time today, Joe, uh, really focusing on your new book, which we'll get to. But I did have one question for you from a book that's that's done well that I've seen in a lot of different circles, and that's The Mission of God, A Manifesto of Hope for Society back from 2016, I believe. But in the introduction of this book, you pose the question, which is, what is the relationship between faith and public morality and policy? Okay, not just faith and morality, not just faith and policy, but public morality and policy. So, you know, we can't do much but scratch the surface on that subject. But how would you answer that question? Well, I think the issue that it speaks to is that for a variety of reasons, uh, over time, there's been a radical separation of our faith, or what we might call religion, and public life. And, uh, that has led to a kind of radical disjunction in people's minds that faith has to do with my personal walk with God, my personal ethical behavior, perhaps my marriage, my personal devotions, my, the life of the church. But it doesn't have anything specific to do with law, politics, education, the arts, meet all of those things. And so what I'm arguing in Mission of God fundamentally is that the we've, we've, um, we've steadily surrendered the keynote of the Bible which is the kingdom of God, uh, which encompasses much more than my personal life and the life of the institutional church. It's for all of life, every aspect of life, whether you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. Uh, it touches every area and every sphere of life. And so that at the root of all of public life and public morality and policy are religious assumptions. There is no neutral space in any area of life. Uh, there's no neutral law, there's no neutral politics, there's no neutral education. There is a religious foundation for all of it. So my answer is that we have to recover a scriptural vision uh, of the kingdom of God and the law of God in all of scripture for public life. And, and that's the fundamental message of my book, The Mission of God, is that we need a wholesale recovery of a biblical vision of the kingdom of God that touches area, every area of life and break out of this two-story mentality. If you imagine a double-decker bus with a upper story and a lower story, and we've kind of said to ourselves, well, faith is in the upper story, and that's spirituality, personal devotions, church, and Bible study, and then culture and the rest of the stuff that really matters in history and in life, that's all on a lower story. That's secular. And that we don't need the Bible, we don't need scripture, we don't need Christ and his lordship in the lower story, just the upper story. We have to shatter that uh, false dichotomy, that false duality, and recognize the relevance of the word of God and the kingdom of God for every area of life. That's the message of mission of God. Well, and the great thing about the mission of God and a lot of things that you just brought up there, Joe, that really dovetails very nicely into ruler of kings and into the world that we're currently trying to traverse right now. I mean, you're in Canada. I'm sure you still have a lot of work that you do across the pond as well. But in the introduction of your new book, which again, guys, that'll be in the show notes. You should grab it. It's a very short book, but it's dense. I mean, it's like, you know, a really thick chili that book is. But in the introduction, you say that you want to make sense of three issues related to the realm of politics and civil government. So the those are, number one, the phenomenon of intellectualism and the cult of the expert. The second is globalism and utopianism. And the third is fact of authority. So I, I do want to take those kind of one by one and sure. kind of look at them. So the first thing is the phenomenon of intellectualism and the cult of the expert. So in this section, you do a deep dive into what you call, and this is actually a quote, the human tendency to shift great decision-making power on intellectuals in the belief that expertise in one isolated area equips one to lead and order in a broader area, unquote. And, and for us, we've seen that a lot with our public health experts, people telling us that they know what's best for us and for our children, those types of things. So give us an idea about that first section about this phenomenon of intellectualism and how that leads to the cult of the expert. Sure. So really part of the Western tradition uh, since the, you know, art, the influence that the basically, uh, Kyle, the, the ancient Greeks had on us, uh, but you see it in the Bible too. You see it uh, very simply in um, in some of the amazing stories of Scripture, like the story of the Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're being dragged off into exile, 
and schooled in uh, a, a, a school for a Babylonian elite so that they could be advisors in the king's court. You see it in Egypt. Um, you see it even uh, when you think about the Magi that came to see Jesus. This is a kind of, this has been something that has throughout human history has been uh, a peculiar phenomenon is that rulers and leaders and governments have sought out particular kinds of experts. Sometimes they were called satraps or magicians or magi or advisors or whatever uh, to um, counsel government, to advise government. Now, of course, uh, from a Christian standpoint, uh, we recognize that um, uh, it's actually important that uh, our elected officials receive decent guidance, uh, decent advice, so that they're not isolated and alone. Um, but the, the more recent modern phenomenon that, that we really inherited through the, through the Western tradition, but as our culture is steadily de-Christianized, has become a significant problem, is that the, in many respects in the West, the, the people that we used to go to for advice about life generally, for life counsel, were pastors. Mm -hmm. uh, it was priests. It was the church. When you when you really needed counsel and advice about your life, about your family, uh, about um, your plans, about your struggles, about your problems, uh, it was it was the pastor. It was the priest that you went to. But as we've secularized, a new uh, a beginning, perhaps with figures like Jean Jacques Rousseau uh, uh, at the beginnings of the French Revolution, we've seen this development of a new intellectual class. Uh, in the West. And by intellectual, I don't mean somebody who's smarter than everybody else. Right. I mean, somebody whose um, work product is ideas. I mean, you have listeners who are uh, you know, engineers, firefighters, police officers, truck drivers, uh, manufacturers, welders, whatever. And we all have a different product from our work. The intellectual is somebody who is characterized by ideas being their work product. Um, and this has taken on in our own era, especially over the since World War II, um, a, a new kind of um, sort of cultic religious expression where cadres of elites, of, of intellectual elites, have become the new counselors, the new advisors, the new, the new priesthood uh, within our society. And as you said, it's been on, frankly, almost terrifying display uh, the last two years, um, and a sort of technocratic elite uh, have taken the place of, of, of the church and also taken the place of other important influences like the influence of the family uh, mm -hmm. in our lives to almost pretend to a kind of um, a kind of authority to arrogate to themselves a kind of authority that really only belongs to the word of God. Uh, and um, to, to those that um, seek to guide us in terms of the in terms of the scriptures, take have drawn an authority to themselves to say we have uh, a unique anointing, and I would I would mm -hmm. use that word uh, a unique anointing, not just to advise, uh, but to um, to tell people how they ought to live. And very often, those rules, those uh, those the way that people ought to live, society ought to live, doesn't apply to them, sure. uh, uh, and that makes them this kind of an elite because very often the rules don't apply for to them. These are rules, these are ideas that should ap apply to everybody else, but don't necessarily apply to them. And you, you know, in the book, I try and give numerous examples going back to the French Revolution, Revolution and even to showing the kind of things in pagan contexts in scripture, right through to, to more, much more modern examples in the 20th century, and then talking about how that has impacted our daily lives right through to the present, where modelers, computer modelers, and mm -hmm. virologists and epidemiologists with a very, very narrow area of expertise on which we do well to say, okay, what does the virologists say about virology, right. but I don't really care what they have to say about my going to church or coming to the communion table or how I'm going to lead my family uh, or how I'm going to conduct my work and my business. They can say what they want about uh, virology, and I will take that under advisement. But there's been this perception now 
and it's been going on for a long time, and it's not just this issue of the recent uh, COVID response, but it's in multiple areas now where, being, where we're being told, uh, take, for example, the area of human sexuality. Some bizarre collection of, of radical intellectuals tell us that there are numerous genders and sex, biological sex is a fiction, and now we have to teach our children that and educate in terms of that and even reorder our entire lives around that. And so this cult of the expert, this new secular priesthood that claims to speak with an anointing and with an authority uh, is something that I pick up in the book and is something that as Christians we have to reject. When you do give a lot of great examples, I kind of elucidated out a little bit further, but also something in which we, we don't have time to really talk about because we need to get into the rest of the parts of the book. It's interesting how they can always move the target, right? So there, there's a quote I do want to read. It says, when the lives, education, and socioeconomic future of children, families, and society are destroyed by the application of these intellectuals as near unintelligible word games, the blame is placed on societal taboos, the patriarchal family, traditional institutions, structural inequality, and systemic racism racism for things not working out well, which has got to be super convenient, Joe. Whenever you're wrong and you've made the wrong call, how you can just easily be like, oh, no, 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 it's that person or no, 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 we need to debate this thing. It's like, hey, look at this shiny thing over here. You know, here recently in the United States, we we did the anniversary of January 6th so that we don't have to worry about the jobs report, that we don't have to worry about COVID cases. We don't have to worry about this. It's look at this shiny thing over here that if, you know, things were flipped, we wouldn't even be talking about it. But that section leads into the second section, Joe which is globalism and utopianism. So I want to read a quick quote from this because I think it sums up a little bit of the section. When developing a distinctly Christian political vision, it is imperative that Christians understand the difference between utopianism and the kingdom of God, lest they be found advancing the cause of other gods and another faith. And so I've been taught, Joe, that globalism is a positive thing. It's a positive word and that we should be striving for utopia, right? But utopianism... ISM, the ism, and the kingdom of God, those are like oil and water. So kind of help explain that to our listeners mm. here. Yeah. So uh, it's important to distinguish between globalism, as you've mentioned there, uh, with that uh, suffix ism on the end, which tends to suggest to us, hang on, something's being overly exaggerated here, uh, and globalization. So, uh, or what we might call internationalization. So, so most of us, to to a large degree, have benefited from uh, a positive internationalism or globalization. Globalization involves things like uh, information technology, uh, communications ability. For example, what we're doing today, you in the states, me in Canada, uh, is part of the reality of globalization. The way we're able to interact faster uh, and more effectively. Uh, global trade, uh, international relations, global interaction between uh, independent nation states. We could say those are positive things. Uh, there's a kind of positive internationalization where we get to communicate with one another, trade with one another, and so on. Uh, so it's not an attack on international relations and the, the positive things. Of course, many negative things come with globalization as well for example mm -hmm. the export of international terror uh the the problem of the, the international sexual slave trade and so on so there's all kinds of negatives that have to be monitored too but in general we can say that you know we've benefited from internationalization in the modern world the problem is not globalization but globalism and that is essentially the modern take the most recent take on utopianism and utopia, uh, probably a term coined by Sir Thomas More, uh, his book Utopia, which was a sort of um, a communist manifesto of sorts, um, it means no place, quite literally. But utopia as an idea, of course, goes back again to, um, well, I would argue in the Bible, it goes right back to uh, Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel and the attempt to build a single world order. Uh, an idolatrous world order in rebellion against God. And uh, this idea of utopianism has seen multiple different incarnations. I mean, the, 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 the famous uh, Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle wrote their utopias, their republics, their ideas mm -hmm. of, a, again, Kyle, a, a, a collectivist communist order led by who? 
a set of elites, right. philosopher kings who are going to tell the rest of us how to live, um, not surrendered to God. Because, of course, if you don't have God and his word and those who, sh who preach God's word, you need a, 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 a kind of substitute priestly class. And that's the secular intellectuals. So these utopian schemes have always come from the, the thinking of these uh, intellectual elites. And globalism... Uh, is the latest expression of utopianism. And what it really means, what it really says, is that uh, nation states are bad. Uh, you know, America as a independent sovereign nation state going its own way, establishing its own laws, uh, governing its own people uh, is bad. Uh, what we need is a global order uh, where borders are broken down, where we have a, 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 an international law that governs everybody, where we can export an equalitarian, egalitarian view of reality, where distinctions are being broken down, where unity is the idol and is the idea, the, the basic idea. Um, and there is a kind of world empire, uh, mm. a, a global um, humanistic empire led by man's reason and established and dictated to by a group of global intellectual elites who will tell humanity how to live, what is the best way to live, and exert growing and increasing controls over people's lives. The last two years have been a big expression of that. You may have come across the book I mentioned in my book, um, Ruler of Kings, I mention the interesting expression of this in as it's manifest in international bodies and globalist organizations like the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. The founder of that, Klaus Schwab, he looks a bit like a Bond villain. Um, uh, he uh, he wrote the book COVID nineteen: The Great Reset, um, right. and uh, which I read uh, uh, in some of my preparations for this book, and it, it parrots this same message. Uh, and that's in radical contrast to what the Bible says about the kingdom of God, which you may want to uh, to comment on or ask me about. Well, I think that the important thing about that is it's how all these things coalesce together, because this is not an easy subject to talk about in terms of, you know, keeping it very, very short, but because there's so many different tendrils that come off of yeah. it. And like I've mentioned in your very, very short book, you talk about all these different things that are happening now, but how they're related to history. And it reminds me of times whenever I talk to, to men in my community that are angry about what's going on at their school boards, right? Because of critical race theory. And I'm like, okay, what is critical theory? They have no idea. Okay, yeah. what, what is the Frankfurt School? No idea. Hey, what is Marxism? They have no idea. They have no idea who influenced Karl Marx, and yet they're just so outraged and angry, and it's a problem of definition for them. It's hard for them to define their enemy, so it's hard for them to fight them. But I really think everything kind of comes together in the last section of your book, Joe, where you talk about the fact of authority, because mm -hmm. this is this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we really start you know, kind of coming out of the ethereal and getting to what's really at the core of everything. And there's a major through point in that section. And guys, just again, Again, we're barely scratching the surface here. You've got to get this book and read it for yourself. The major through point, though, in this section is something that you call sphere sovereignty. Okay, and I was not familiar with that phrase before. So what is sphere sovereignty? And I guess, why is that important to this overall discussion? Yeah, so it relates actually back to um, the, the second point that you raised, Carl, about globalism is that uh, at the heart of the Christian response, which is the kingdom of God. So we could say that in many respects, uh, utopianism or globalism is a kind of logical necessity for the unbeliever because they don't have the kingdom of God. They don't know the lordship of Christ. So they need uh, a replacement substitute kingdom. Um, this, these ideas are essentially inescapable and utopianism apes it. It, it copies the biblical idea of the kingdom of God, and it tries to secularize it. And actually, that's what Marxism is. That's what these collectivist utopian schemes are. They're attempts to bring about unity among people uh, without God. They're, they're, an, they're an attempt to build a kingdom uh, and, a, uh, a, in a certain sense, a, a universal empire, but without recognition of the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ and his salvation. So, the, the, the scriptural response is that man cannot, under his own power, save himself, which is what utopianism essentially means. Man must organize his own planetary salvation. No, only Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. 
And he is establishing his universal empire, his universal kingdom. We're told that in Philippians 2. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Roman, uh, Revelation 1.5, from where I get the title of my book, uh, he, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Uh, this is who Jesus Christ really is. So there is only one sovereign potentate. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he is God and man, he has the right and the authority, unlike the cadre of self-anointed experts, he alone, as both God and man, has the right to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and to tell us how we should live and to establish his rule and his kingdom and his reign. Now, the root of that idea in the Bible is the principle of sphere sovereignty. And it basically, sphere sovereignty simply says, Jesus Christ is Lord and King over every single area of life. That's the first most fundamental principle. And he governs all of these spheres of life in terms of his law word. That's the fundamental basis and principle of sphere sovereignty. And it recognizes that God has established and separated uh, different areas of authority, what we might call different jurisdictions or spheres of authority in creation. Uh, we see three very obvious ones in scripture. Uh, the first is the the family, which is a pre-political institution. It's there before the state and before the church. The second is the, the state. We can see the beginnings of that in Genesis 9 after the flood, God establishing organized institutional human authority. And the third is the, the life of the church. We see those distinct spheres. And actually, even in the Older Testament, Kyle, we see that God insisted on the separation of kingship or the state and the priesthood because Saul lost his kingdom for his presumption to act as a priest and offer the sacrifices. We see that in the life of Isaiah as well. Um, there are several times where we see uh, re the rebuke of kings for their attempts to either usurp the family or the, the church, whether the Old Testament church or the New Testament church. So these spheres of authority are governed in terms of God's word, in terms of God's law, in terms of God's purpose, and they have their own distinct law with respect to them. So the family and the state and the church are not governed in the same way. Um, and if you actually destroy the distinctions between family, church, and state, if the family encroaches on the life of the state and of the church, you have a mafia. If the, if the church tries to control the state and the family, you have an ecclesiocracy, which was expressed to some degree in the medieval era. And of course, if the state tries to control and usurp the authority of family and church, you have statism, and that is totalitarianism. And that, of course, is what I address in my book. The sphere sovereignty is the Christian principle that protects us from a totalitarianism, which we saw on terrifying display in the 20th century in the Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany. And we're seeing it increasingly on display again here in the West. Totalitarianism essentially means, Kyle, that one institution, in this case the state, tries to treat all the other spheres of life as lesser parts of itself. They try to treat it in parts to whole fashion. And so it tries to steadily make the individual stand naked before the state uh, uh, as merely a, um, a, essentially a number, as purely a, a, a component, a part of the state without any free mediating institutions like the family and the church and our vocations, which also govern us. And that is the great threat of our era, which I deal with in the book. And sphere sovereignty is the scriptural kingdom principle that says, no, Christ is Lord over the family, the church and the state, and they must be restricted and delimited to their particular and peculiar spheres of authority. The thing that's, that's shocking about everything that you just described, and thanks for going into so much detail on sphere sovereignty, is how easily people are persuaded or forced to do the opposite of what they know to even be correct. So there, there's a quote from the book that is my absolute favorite quote. I highlighted it. I drew all kinds of things all around it. And so I want to read it here because I think this really goes to the point there. It's what has become increasingly clear in recent debacles or decades is that we are entering an era likely protracted of struggle for the freedom of the church in the West, not just with the state and its bureaucracy, but with various church movements themselves, some of whose leaders are emerging as 
committed apologists for statism. There has never been a shortage of cultural leaders ready to support and advise falling down before the image of the absolutist state when the music plays to obey the state elites without question. It is always the Daniels and his three friends ready to pray despite the king's edict or refusing to bow down to overreaching political power who are in short supply. As a result, when it comes to analyzing threats to freedom from their own civil government, courts and bureaucracy, Christians are generally poorly equipped. Like the proverbial frog slowly boiled to death for failing to detect the rising temperature of the water, we are sleepwalking towards tyranny. Right there, Joe. Sleepwalking towards tyranny. Now, I know people from the UK and people from Canada, they look at us Americans like we're a bunch of weirdos with our liberty and our guns and our amendments and all these different things. But I'm shocked in this country to see how many people were so willing, especially in the church, not in spite of, but especially inside the church, to just say, sure. You tell me whether or not we can sing at church. You tell me whether or not we can gather. You tell us tell us whether or not we can be the ecclesia, those types of things. Joe, I'm I'm a little bit scared. I'm not, I'm not scared easily. I'm not, you know, ready to throw my hands up and say the war has been lost. But what exactly is happening here? Because I'm not as scared about the push they're making now. I'm scared about the next one. Because right now they're pushing us to the edge. The CDC here in America just released recently that the 10 days of quarantining after COVID, that wasn't based on any scientific data or any studies. It was based on how much they thought they could get people to comply. When they moved it from 10 days to five days, it's like, why'd you cut it in half? I'm not worried about this push. I'm worried about the next one. Am I crazy? No. No, this is the problem is that uh, tyranny is a slow creep. Um, and uh, if you look at the history and the birth and growth of, of tyranny uh, and totalitarianism, it typically comes during periods of peculiar cultural pressure, uh, societal decay, economic pressures, um, and, uh, and steady de-Christianization. And um, it creeps upon people until suddenly they ask themselves, how on earth did we get here? Hmm. And uh, if... If we lack in the life of the church men and women of Issachar who understand the times and are ready to speak prophetically to them, who are informed by a robust biblical world and life view, then we have all kinds of problems in the church as well. And I think as somebody who's a British and, and been living in Canada for, for many years, I too have been surprised at the USA, um, not just politically, the, 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 the sort of astonishing way in which the Nobody would have expected the United States of all countries to have submitted to this kind of thing uh, mm -hmm. politically. It's been troubling to look at large portions of the church who unequipped with a biblical world and life view and without the principle of sphere sovereignty simply do not know how to respond cogently to what has taken place and this growth of statism and the totalitarian creep uh, that's all around us. I think you are still in a better situation than Canada for sure um, in terms of pushback and, and your uh, constitution offers much better protection than the almost entirely useless Canadian charter, mm. um, which actually was written in any case and, and became uh, the sort of law of the land back in 82 in Canada uh, with an agenda actually of giving the state much greater power than it had under the British North America Act. That's another subject. But you, you are in a better condition nonetheless in the US, and it isn't too late, but the pushback has to come, and it has to come from the church who understand that Jesus is Lord, that he is sovereign, and that the church, uh, that Christ is head of the church, not the state, and that Jesus Christ is head of the family, um, and, and we submit to him. That's Paul's teaching in Ephesians. Uh, we submit to one another as unto the Lord, because the family, it's, it's the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. It's not the state. And so if we as believers don't recover a, a deep understanding of our biblical worldview, and this is what's happened, Kyle, is that basically our biblical understanding uh, understanding of a scriptural worldview. I'm not talking now simply about knowing Bible verses uh, or, 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 or having a good handle on the Bible for, for one's personal life. How does the scripture inform a total biblical world and life view so that we know and understand what is a biblical view of the state? What is a biblical view of law? 
What's a biblical view of family? What is a biblical view of economics? What is a biblical view of, of, of business? How are we to understand the freedoms and liberties of the church? You said it yourself, we don't understand, and therefore we don't know how to respond to critical theory, Marxism, totalitarianism, because we haven't taken the time, we've lost, in a certain sense, uh, a depth of understanding in the implications of the gospel. And this is, in the end, what it's about, Carl. It's about the gospel. It's about our understanding of the fullness of the meaning and implications of the gospel. And we've restricted that, we said at the beginning, to that upper story. That dualistic view. We said, yeah, the Bible, we've ecclesiasticized it. We've said it belongs only in the church. It's not a, not a book for the world. It's not a book for the state. Mm -hmm. It's not a book for the school. It's not a book for the totality of life. It's just a spiritual book up here in this, in this privatized area of my life. And because we've allowed that, we now don't know how to respond in the so-called lower story. We need to shatter those two stories, reunify the Christian life so that we're able to respond meaningfully. I absolutely agree. And, you know, you've said we've, we've privatized that part of our life, but we've also like bumper stickerized it. We, we've tried to make the gospel and Jesus like this cute thing that we put on a coffee cup or that this cute, you know, soft featured white guy that, you know, walked around in his sandals a couple thousand years ago, you know, basically, uh, perpetrating the the dictates of socialism somehow right like we've we've somehow gotten to that point where we've made the line of judah into this guy that we can just curl up and put into our shirt pocket and pull out when we need him to say something piffy to a friend at work but uh, i think that your your book did a great job of helping us you know look at the theology and the philosophy behind all these different things so guys again ruler of kings you got to make sure that you check that out i do want to transition a little bit in our time here that we have left because obviously you are a christian apologist you've done a lot of speeches you've you've given a lot of debates and there's always that one question that comes up that whenever I talk to an atheist or when I talk to somebody that really struggles with the idea that there could even be a God, we're not even worried about the resurrection yet. We're not worried about Jonah and the well and the dinosaurs and everything else. We're just worried about why do bad things happen? You know, the problem of evil, the problem of pain. So anytime I get to interact with a Christian apologist like yourself, I'd like to hear how you interact with that question. Now, I understand you're not just answering a question, you're answering a questioner. And so there's going to be different things that you would have. But yeah. in general, how do you as a Christian apologist deal with the problem of evil, the problem of pain? Mm -hmm. So this is a, a sort of subset of the, of, the, of, the, of the moral problem. And it's one of the oldest uh, questions and objections. Interestingly enough, it's primarily a question that arises in the West, uh, where there is perhaps the least amount of suffering, and and less in the uh, less in the East. Uh, but fundamentally, the way I go about answering it uh, to begin with is to ask the person. Um, uh, usually, I answer a question with a question. Um, and, uh, this is actually one of the things that Jesus did frequently is he posed questions because it gets people to open up about their own assumptions. And one of the things that I like to say is, well, when you say that, that there's, that there's a problem of suffering or a problem of pain or a problem, what we might call this, this, this problem of evil of which the problem of pain or suffering is a subset. Are you saying that there is such a thing as good and evil? Right. I mean, that's the foundational starting point is that uh, the notion that we can use the categories of good and evil to deny the existence of God, who provides the only foundation for the categories of good and evil, is a problem. Right. So it's forcing people to, first of all, recognize that uh, are they saying that, um, that good and evil are more than subjective states uh, in my own mind or my own perception? Are they just are they preferences uh, or are, is there really a standard of good and evil, of right and wrong? Uh, is there a law that would say this is evil and this is good? And if there is a law that, that defines good and evil, right from wrong, then there must be a law giver. And uh, when people say, well, yes, but um, there's pain and there's suffering in life and surely a good God would want to eliminate uh, pain and suffering. There's a number of things that we could say about that. But first of all, you have to ask people, what's the alternative? If you reject God and his good creation and the fact that we are fallen and ruined creatures because of our sin and rebellion against God, I mean, in that sense, the scriptural response that I build around is that the, the Bible doesn't so much solve as it dissolves the problem of evil in terms of its own narrative. 
a good creation fell into ruin because of sin and rebellion against God. And the suffering that we see and the pain that we see in the world is a consequence of that sin. What's the alternative, though? The alternative is to say that there is an evolutionary background only to our experience in the world. We're we're the product of cosmic chance and flux from the goo through the zoo to you. Uh, And actually, um, it's just survival of the fittest and and pain, um, suffering is part of the story of evolution. What are you complaining about? In fact, suffering and death are the engine of change and of life in evolution. So usually you're dealing with people who have a contradict, who are struggling with a will struggle at that point with a cognitive dissonance. Um, their worldview says pain and suffering ultimately is a is a positive good because it brings about change and moves uh, the the universe, the world to a uh, a, a predetermined well, some kind of goal, some mm-hmm. kind of end uh, that evolution is working itself out into. So if that's true, you've got no complaints. So what are you whining about? The only way you could possibly even raise the question is if you are already assuming that there is a good God and that creation is somehow broken. It's, 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 it's defective somehow. And that's exactly what scripture says. Creation is broken. It's been subject to futility and it needs redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. When creation itself, Romans 8, Paul says in Romans 8, is going to be released finally from its bondage to corruption and its its bondage to futility uh, with the resurrection of our bodies. So in that sense, there's a glorious solution to the problem of pain and suffering. But the one who objects to a God uh, on the basis of good and evil um, assumes the existence of the God they're trying to disprove because without such a God, there can be no law of good and evil. Well, and the thing about it that's so interesting to me when I engage with them is I am like, why do you care? If we're just stardust bumping into other stardust, if we're highly evolved chimps that wear pants and talk to each other, none of it matters. We're all worm food. And in the way that I, I gave it to a guy who was, he was not in, in a militant atheist. He was just a very thoughtful guy. That's like, yeah, I just don't really believe any of this stuff. It's like, the thing is, is that you have to reckon with that question way more than I do. Because if we go right. our, our ways throughout life and we both die at our, our, you know, in our eighties or something like that. And you're right. Then we're just worm food, baby. I've just wasted a whole lot of time, effort, and money over these years, worshiping a God that didn't exist. And we ended up in the same place. The problem is, is if I'm right and you're wrong, it's your eternity, brother. And so it's like, you really have to reckon. And I try to get people pointed to the resurrection as the starting point because they get, they get too torn up with the, you know, how could somebody split the sea and how could somebody, you know, turn, have a burning bush that's not consumed. It's like, let's not worry about that. Let's worry about the resurrection, which I guess really goes to my last question that we have time for, for today is when you engage with somebody that believes the Bible is nonsense, either there's they're an intellectual that believes, hey, this has been translated so many times, we don't have the absolute originals. You know, there's the this council that decided these books can be added, and this council that could be cited. Whether they're describing those things accurately or not is kind of dubious. But you have the people that just don't take the Bible seriously. Hey, that's just a collection of ancient manuscripts that's not really indicative of how I should live my life. Why are you making a biblical argument to me? I don't agree with it. And one way you see this is in the abortion side of things. You know, we're talking about, hey, we shouldn't end an innocent human life. Well, someone starts making a biblical argument. It's like, no, no, I don't really care about all that. But I, I guess the way that it's it's just harder for me to answer that question to somebody whenever I point them to scripture and they're like, yeah, I categorically dismiss this book entirely. How do you work with that? Yeah. So I think um, it's important. Uh, I, I work within a tradition, Carl, that's called the presuppositional tradition in Christian apologetics. And uh, um, I would uh, engage in um, a use of a transcendental argument. And for the sake of your listeners, I boil that down very simply in my little book called Why I Still Believe, which is available from the, from the Institute, Why I Still Believe. I, I deal in that book with how I tackle uh, uh, these, these kinds of questions. I think the important thing to, to, to note um, is that anybody who wants to engage with you in an argument is presupposing that there is such a thing as truth. Uh, and that um, and that they would insist that you are using uh, logical, rational argumentation uh, in a certain sense, following 
rules or laws of reasoning so that we can have a meaningful discussion or a meaningful argument. So if they want to object to the Bible on the basis of a given number of uh, reasons, they're assuming that those reasons are are valid in terms of uh, rational principles. So the first question then becomes, well, how can you have a rational principle, laws of reasoning, laws of thought in a uni- in a materialist universe without God? So the very idea of argument itself, I would begin there, presupposes the God of Scripture. And I think where we well, the, the thing to emphasize, and this is how I would advise people, is think about these kinds of discussions in terms of a much broader worldview perspective. You can get into the details, as you've mentioned there, of you know manuscripts and archaeology and so on and so forth and have those discussions. And there's value in that as long as we acknowledge we're coming at those arguments from a from a biblical worldview perspective. What we need to challenge the, the unbeliever with, who's coming with that sort of perspective, is they hold to a worldview that says they reject any transcendent authority. They reject any notion that there is a God who has spoken. There's a God who is there and who has spoken. So they must now assume to the, for themselves another kind of authority. Uh, uh, in their, in their, even in their presupposing the idea of truth, which makes no sense without God, there can only be the way your atoms shake down in your head and the way mine shake down. The very idea of truth that transcends our minds disappears when you destroy the idea of the biblical God. If you remove that, there is really no truth. But going beyond that, we can say that we're talking about worldviews, and they are presupposing one form of authority, and we are saying that with Scripture and positing the God of Scripture, we're not... We're not saying that we can prove in detail from something else the authority of the Bible. The authority of Scripture and of the Lord Jesus Christ is our starting point. He's our because I said so moment. The unbeliever has their because I said so moment as well. They also, in their worldview, posit an ultimate source of authority. The question becomes then, which ultimate source of authority makes human life intelligible? Their authority is themselves the reach of their own minds, the idea that they, that we have to trust that they in their own cogitations ha- are, are the valid source of authority for life. We can show in the course of discussion that their very idea of truth and reason and everything breaks down and dissipates into nothing. Our beginning, our starting point though is God and his self-revelation in scripture. And what we really want to ask the non-believer to do is say, look, Let me put on the glasses, your worldview for a moment, which you've got cemented to your nose. I'm going to put your worldview on for a moment. And I'm going to look at the world as though there's no God and no revelation from God. And I'm going to show you how that produces an unintelligible view of reality where there's no truth, no moral law, no laws of thought, no laws of reason, no actual ability to have scholarly communication, and no answer to problems like morality and evil and so on. Now, take my worldview. Given in scripture, the lordship of Christ. And I invite you just for a moment, just for the sake of argument, put those on your nose and look at the world in terms of how scripture says it is and see how it makes entire sense of the human situation. You snuck in earlier, actually, a little bit of Pascal's wager uh, when you said, you know, if I'm wrong and I'm just a ball of, you know, I'm just stardust, right. uh, what does it matter? I've lived a fulfilling life. I've had meaning. I've had a sense of purpose. We both end up in oblivion. But if you're wrong and I'm right, there's eternal consequences. Now, what Pascal meant by that was not just, hey, look, it's a 50-50 flip. What he meant was, because this is true, because, as he said, the fall makes entire sense of the human situation, the human condition. Once accepted, he says, at first it seems offensive to our reason. He says this in his pensee, but he says, once accepted, it makes sense. It makes entire sense of the human condition. And so what he meant by his wager was, if you are really sincere about the pursuit of truth, put yourself in a situation where you might encounter it. This is what Christ claims. This is what the Bible claims. So why not speak to Christians? Why not read the Bible? Why not uh, go to those places like a church where those claims that those Christians are making uh, can be put to the test? Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's really what Pascal was saying. 
place your bet there and see if God does not reveal himself to you. Because that's the assurance of scripture, uh, that those who seek find. And to those who not, the door will be open. So we start with that worldview perspective and then challenge people to say, put the, put the lenses of scripture on and ask God as you do so to reveal himself to you, if you're truly sincere, because he will. And it's the sincerity part. A lot of these people, they never seek, they never knock. And for a lot of people listening to this as well, I've said this a lot on the show, Greg Kokel, who's another great apologist and speaker, he always talks about putting a rock in someone's shoe. He's like, you're expecting to go up to the plate and hit a grand slam every time. That's not what's going to happen. A lot of these people have to go on their own journey and they have the time in order to do that. But Joe, we are out of time for this interview, but I'm so glad we were able to get into the subject matters that we did. I'm sure we'll have you back on at some point to dig into some more difficult topics. But for now, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, just to say, if uh, so thankful that you've had me on the show, Carl. Great to make the connection. Thanks to John Cooper. And if people want to connect with us, it's EzraInstitute.ca, and they can follow us uh, on Twitter, and they can also follow on Facebook, and they can follow me on Twitter too, at, uh, at Dr. Joe Boot. All that will be in the show notes, my guys. And Dr. Joe Boot, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. God bless you. Thank you, Carl. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Dr. Joe Boo. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And specifically, we do that with content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a lot of links for you today because they've got a lot of resources through Dr. Joe Boot. So I've got links to the Ezra Institute. And then I've also got links where you can pick up this new book, Ruler of Kings, at Ezra Press Books. That's for the United States audience and Wilberforce Publications out of the UK. I've also got an Amazon link to all of Joe Boot's books that are on Amazon and specifically the one, Why I Still Believe, which is one that he mentioned there in the interview. Also, I've got a link to the Ezra Institute podcast for cultural reformation, a link to Joe's Twitter account and the Ezra Institute's Twitter account, and then the initial interview that I discovered Joe Boot, which is when he was on John Cooper's podcast, and that was podcast episode 84, God, Government, and How to Fix This Mess with Dr. Joseph Boot. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album, Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>